was somewhere else. And, uh, and so Ryan and Sam met with her, talked with her. She's like, no, 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 I'm a Christian. She professed faith, and, and they baptized her right out there on the beach. And she was here at the first service with a friend of hers. And I thought, how cool is that? So that's pretty neat. And by the way, sign up, sign up, sign up, please, for the 20th. It, it, how many of you all love Drew Brown? You just love Drew Cherry. You love her. Sorry. She's, I've known her all her life. Okay, she's not going to sleep if you don't sign up. That's what you need to know. I mean, listen, this is a big deal. Like, it's going to be a big event. It's been on the radio. Like, the community is jazzed, and we need to know if you're coming. None of this, oh, you know, I'm going to be there, and I don't need to sign up. No, no, no. I know this is real. We don't sign up, but we show up. Okay, sign up and show up. And show up, and then she'll be rested. All right, if you were with us last week, you know that together with churches all over South Florida, we began a three-week study. We are calling it Awaken, Live Like It Matters. And here's what we're doing. Collectively as a church in South Florida, we're going to the Word of God, and we're asking all of us the same question, which is, Lord, what does it look like to be awake to your presence? What does it look like to be awake to your power, to your love, to your mercy, to your grace, and very, very significantly, what does it look like to be awake to your mission? And God, don't just reveal this and teach this to our minds. You know, don't just give us a picture of it so we can go, okay, I can perform an evaluation of me and of you and of everybody else, and I can decide, are we awake, are we not awake? Maybe yesterday, maybe not today, but no, no, no. Teach it to us by experience. In other words, come and by your spirit do what only you can do, which is to wake up your people so that we can live like it matters. That's the goal. And it's a Monday through Saturday goal. It's not like Sunday doesn't matter, but the whole point of this study, the whole point of this series is to mobilize the church Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday. It's to motivate every one of us to take a look at our lives spiritually and missionally and to go, okay, I need to do a little bit of planning here. I need to do a survey here. I need to be strategic here. We are strategic about everything in life. We're strategic about our finances. We're saving and we're monitoring it and we have meetings with our financial advisor to make sure that whenever it is that we retire, we're going to be able to survive. You know, we're going to be able to make it. We're strategic about our businesses. We're involved in executive, you know, meetings and these kinds of things that help us develop more strategic plans. We get life coaches. We We get personal trainers to work us out physically. We go see psychologists to figure us out emotionally. Like we have all of these people and all of these plans and all of these things involved in our lives. How about spiritually? God is like, I have made you to be awake. I gift you. I fill you. And this mission pervades everywhere you go and everything you're involved in and all that you do. Be as thoughtful about that as you are about everything else. Be strategic. So as we continue that journey today, we meet a man who is both an Ethiopian and a eunuch, and as we're going to see, both matter to the story. And therefore, this man is uniquely positioned, at least based on the criteria of the city in Jerusalem in first century Jerusalem of his day, to teach us a very important lesson. And here's the lesson. It is that God often builds his kingdom with the most unlikely people. And here's why that matters, because we think that we're the unlikely person, and we're not. Like, I think most Christians, at least, are kind of on board with the idea that God is a project. We might not understand fully what the project is, but, you know, he's building something. He's got a mission. There's a kingdom involved here. I don't know what it's going to look like completely. I don't know that I fully have my mind around it, but I know that it's one person at a time kind of a thing. He is bringing people to faith in Jesus. He's filling these people with his spirit. He's sending these people out in every aspect of their lives, strategically, on mission, 
You are, all of you, missionaries. Everybody. So like we get that, and we're even kind of on board, I think, with the idea that God is going to do this. He's going to do it by his spirit, and he's going to do it through people. We just think it's going to be somebody else. You know, like we wake up in the morning, not on Sunday, but on Monday, and we look at ourselves in the mirror, and we go, yeah, kingdom builder. Not really. That person, that person, those people, maybe you in the back. You know, like, but not me. We know our failures. We know our weaknesses. We know our insufficiencies. We know things about us that no one else knows about us, except, wait a minute, hold on a second. There is someone else. He knows it all. And what he's saying is, no, 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 and you. And there's basically no one better to teach this lesson to us than our Ethiopian friend. Because, I mean, on the one hand, okay, based upon not our standards and not our day and not the way that we think, but again, the first century standards of first century Jerusalem, and particularly of its temple, there was pretty much no one on the planet less likely to be used by God than this man. On the other hand, boy, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody more powerfully used than this man. Really, like, I don't know, who you got? This guy is amazing. He is a truly remarkable man. So the story of the Ethiopian eunuch takes place in the midst of a great revival that happens in Samaria that, as we saw last week, is in between Judea and Galilee. So it's in this in-between area. And And the revival is being led by a guy named Philip. So God brings revival, but he brings it by his spirit through people. And in this case, there's one person. It's not five, there's not ten. He doesn't have a team. He's not going out with a whole group. And they get together and go, okay, we're going to take Samaria. No, no, one guy. And whole villages are coming to faith in Jesus because of the preaching, because of the teaching, because of the evangelizing of this one guy. He's the lightning rod. He's the catalyst. He is the anointed one in this particular moment. Thousands of people come into faith in Jesus. And just as the revival is cresting, like it's at its peak, God comes to Philip and says, okay, we're going to shut the whole thing down. Come with me. I'm going to take you out to the desert where nobody is except for this one guy, but he's just traveling through. We're going to close down the whole operation so that you, Philip, can evangelize one man. Kind of raises the expectation level a little bit about him, doesn't it? Listen to what Luke, the author of the book of Acts, says in Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 26. He says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and do what? Go, he's saying, stop the revival, leave the whole region of Samaria, and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which he then describes. He says, this place that I'm sending you is a desert place. It is a desolate place. It is a dry place. It is a place with no water, no life, and therefore then, no people. And Philip did it. He's like, okay, that couldn't have been easy. He obediently rose and he went. And what all of this is designed to do, and I think it does do, like when you really think it through this way, is you're going, man, I don't know who this one guy is going to be. But if he's shutting down thousands to reach this one guy, this guy, like when he looks in the mirror in the morning, he's going, yeah, I'm a kingdom builder. Like there is no way around the fact that this is a significant, amazing man that God is going to use hugely. And look, that's all true. But nobody saw it coming, including maybe even most especially him. Because now he begins to describe him. 
He says, and there was an Ethiopian. I want to stop there. The word Ethiopian means literally black of face. And you say, well, why does it matter that he was a black man? Well, because he's leaving the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem in the first century was arguably and almost certainly the most racist city in the world. Swallow that. It's fact. And that was most especially true in regard to the temple. And they didn't just discriminate against, you know, somebody who's black or brown or even white. They discriminated against everyone who was not Jewish. So that would be me and that would be a lot of you. We would all of us have been subject to that. That's the point. But the difference between me, for example, and my Ethiopian friend here is that I could probably fly under the radar of at least a lot of it. Now, why? Because I have ridiculously white skin, you may have noticed. I'm like at the age now where I go to the dermatologist four to five times a year, and we know each other. Like, I'm like, hey, Mark, how are you? He's like, Tom, good to see you. I know his wife. I know where his son lives in San Francisco. I know all about his family there. I know his daughter lives in an apartment off Broward. But like, we know each other. I keep a list. This is way more than you want to know. But I'm going to say it anyway. I keep a list on my phone of like, I've got a scaly little thing here, and I got this thing here, and I don't know, maybe something back here. Like, I've had skin cancer removed go there all the time. So I went like, I don't know, maybe five years ago. And he's like, yeah, I don't know this thing on your chest. I got to send you to my surgeon friend. So he sends me to this dermatologist out in plantation. And so, you know, I'm sitting there waiting to be examined. Of course, he's examining me to see what else he can cut off because it adds up, you know, I mean, it's wonderful. And, And he's like looking at me and he's going, oh, 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 I'm like, what the heck, you know? Finally, he goes, you were not made for the sun. And I'm like, that would have been helpful in 1970. You know, now it's just insulting. Like, what's the point of all the histrionics here? You were not made for the sun. Well, thanks. You know, you're not very subtle. You know, like, come on. You're not made. Super white skin, brown hair, brown eyes. Okay, I'm in first century Jerusalem. I might be Jewish. You don't know. But I do know that my Ethiopian friend had no such favor. There was no escaping it for him. And not only was he an Ethiopian, but he was also a eunuch. That's the next thing that we read. And why is that significant? Because it's hugely significant. What you need to understand about that day, that age, that culture, those empires, is that it was not uncommon for royal families to take certain male boys when they were really little, two, three, four years old, and to emasculate them. Let me just be plain. They neutered them like you do your dog. And then they would raise them up and train them, and they would then place their harems, okay, under the charge of these eunuchs. You can understand that. You get the reasoning for that. But they would also do that with their treasury. Now, why would they do that with the treasury? It's a little less obvious. They would do it with treasuries because what they wanted to deny these boys who grew into men of is family. Any attachments to any person that is more valuable to them than their attachment to the royal family. And if, for example, you're a non-eunuch and you're in charge of the treasury of the king or of the queen in this instance, and you're married and your wife gets cancer and you don't have enough money to get her the right treatment, but you're in charge of the treasury, now it gets tempting. You have a really gifted daughter and you want to send her to Harvard, you know, and you don't have the money. Now all of a sudden it gets tempting. I took all of this from this guy. That's painful. 
You know, one of the things that we all grow up with in life are these just almost unwritten expectations. We just expect these things are going to happen. So we're going to grow up, we're going to fall in love. We just expect that. At some point, we're going to get married. Hey, we expect that. And then we're going to have kids. We expect that. Then our kids are going to grow up, get married, and then have kids. And we expect that. A little pause there. Some of you are waiting. But we expect those things without even thinking about them. And when they don't happen, and they don't happen for everyone, it's painful. Okay, all that was taken from this guy when he was a little boy. He never had any hope for any of it. And more than that, we know how they treated eunuchs in the first century, and it was brutal, guys. They mocked these men mercilessly. They referred to them as dry trees. What is a dry tree? It's a fruit tree that doesn't bear any fruit because it's incapable. So like if you owned an orchard full of fruit trees, you know, it's like fruitful, 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 dry tree, fruitful, fruitful. What do you do with the dry tree? You cut it down and burn it. It's worthless. Men in that culture were measured in terms of their value largely in regard to how many sons they could produce. How many sons could this man produce? None. Not one, at least not physically. And you say, well, all right, I mean, I, I get it. You know, he's a, he's a clear foreigner in a city that, that rejects foreigners, and that's unavoidable. But I mean, even if they would mer- mock him mercilessly as a eunuch, how would they even know that the guy is a eunuch? And the answer is the same. It's his face. The whole story revolves around his face. See, in the first century, without exception, men wore beards. They just did. If you wanted to humiliate somebody, you'd shave their beard off and then they'd like run out in the desert for a while until it grew back and then they'd re-engage in society. Seriously. And a man who's been emasculated as a little boy does not have the ability to grow a beard. All you had to do was look at him and you knew what the deal was. So just to recap, God interrupts this major revival He shuts it down. He grabs Philip, says, we're going to the desert. We're going to meet this guy. We're all on the edge of our seats going, clearly, this guy's face, you know, the face of a kingdom builder. Newsflash, it actually was, but nobody expected it, including maybe especially him after just being in Jerusalem. And this is the man we see. He's a clear foreigner. He's an obvious eunuch. Now, the one thing that it seems like he has going for him, though I think it probably made his experience in Jerusalem more complicating and less savory, is the fact that he is at least wealthy. So we're told that he was a court official of Candace, which I think is the way to say it. And it's not a name. It's not Candace, the queen of Egypt. It's a title like Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Ethiopia was governed by a matriarchy. They were governed by queens. So he's a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. So he is the main guy in charge of the treasury of Ethiopia. And in that day, Ethiopia was famous for its gold. It was famous for its gems. It was a wealthy, wealthy kingdom. And he, this guy, had come 800 miles to Jerusalem to worship, which practically speaking means that this man in Ethiopia had somehow figured out that the God of Israel is the true and the living God. And he knew enough about the word of God to realize that if sacrifice for his sins was going to be made, and by the way, it needs to. It needs to. A perfect, spotless lamb needs to lay down its life in the place of the guilty. 
that the guilty might go free. He's like, man, I, I know where that happens. That, that, that happens in Jerusalem. That happens actually in the temple in Jerusalem. This guy gets in a carriage, I'm sure with an entourage, because he's fabulously wealthy and needs to be protected, and he travels 800 miles by carriage all the way to Jerusalem, only to experience the racism of the city, to be rejected as a clear foreigner and a eunuch by the temple. For the temple would not admit foreigners and it would not admit the broken and incomplete. Ouch. And then, almost certainly then to be taken advantage of for his great wealth. How did Jesus describe this temple? He called it a den of thieves. It's just insult upon insult upon insult. So this is the guy that Philip's called out to meet, you know, out in the desert. And what's so amazing about this guy is he hasn't given up. He didn't go, you know what, if this is what the people of this God are like, I'm out. <laughs> After that, here, you can, you can have all the scrolls that I, like, it just, I, I'm, I'm out. I, no, he's still searching. He's still looking. He's, he thinks that maybe there's some shred of mercy out there that might yet be available even to him. And it says in, in verse 28 that when Philip encounters him, this man is returning to Ethiopia. He is seated in a chariot while somebody else is driving is the point. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah and he's reading a scroll and he's reading out loud. How do I know that? Well, two ways. It says that Philip hears him, but also because of what we know about the parchment or the velum. It's like an animal skin that they would write things on in those days. It was so priceless. It was so expensive that they would leave zero margin on the page. They used no punctuation at all. So where do the sentences begin and end? You don't know. And they didn't put any space between the words. So it's just strings of letters. So what that meant is that the only way to read it and make sense of it is to read it out loud and to kind of sound it out as you went, which is obviously what this guy is doing. For it says in verse 29 that the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him. I love the urgency of Philip. Love this guy. And he heard him, there it is, reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked him, he's proactive, do you understand what you were reading? And this guy has just been humiliated in Jerusalem. I mean, I don't have this on tape, but I think he probably just threw his hands in the air and went, oh, how can I unless somebody <laughs> explains this to me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then Luke tells us something very important to the story. He tells us exactly where in the scroll of Isaiah the man is reading. It's Isaiah 53. We looked at it, I don't know, five or six weeks ago. It's entirely about Jesus, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. We need a Lamb who is perfect to sacrifice a perfect life, an infinitely valuable one. That's why he has to be God and man. As a man for mankind, he lays his life down and says, let my blood cover over, I don't know, what you got. Because whatever it is, this is powerful enough to deal with it. But he's reading from the scroll. He's come to Isaiah 53. and says what he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he, that is Jesus, was led to slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Why? Because he's bearing our guilt and we're guilty. There's no defense for that. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? Uh-oh. Who can describe his physical children? Why? For his life is taken away from the earth. Actually, what it says is for his life was cut off from the earth. You can see why the eunuch is parking here. He's had no physical children because of a cutting off. So it's like he stops 
And he said to Philip, okay, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? I mean, is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And then Philip does what? And I love this. And here's why I love it, because the people of God are not a closed-mouthed people. We're just, we're not. We're made to speak. We've been given a message. Think about that. What is the gospel? It is a message. He's like, all right, this is my chance. I'm in. That's why I'm here. He opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, which is all about Jesus, he told the Ethiopian eunuch the good news, that's the word gospel, about Jesus, who assumed all of our sin as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then endured the hostilities of the same temple this man had just been abused by, including death on a cross, as the payment, not for anything that he's done, but for everything that we've done. And so that he might become for us the true temple of God, a temple that does not send people away but takes anyone. He's putting together a family made of every kind of person on the planet in every possible way of differentiation. It's remarkable. And he doesn't set aside the broken. He doesn't reject us in our brokenness and our incompleteness, but he brings us in and he heals and he makes us whole. That's the idea. So Philip brings this man to Jesus and then they come upon water and almost certainly what they, I know the area, generally we know the area where this road was and there's a weighty there. What is that? It's a, it's a dry river. Okay. So it runs with very shallow water when it rains. All of a sudden there's life in the desert. It's mimicking what's happening in this guy's heart. He's going from dry to alive, you see. And Philip baptizes this guy. And then it says the Spirit of the Lord just takes Philip away. I I got no explanation for that. He's there and then he's not. And then Luke, with great confidence and certainty, says this. He says, and he, this is verse 39, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. So, I mean, if you're reading it carefully, it's like, how does Luke know that? I mean, Luke wasn't there. He talked to Philip. Wait, no, no, but Philip wasn't even there for that part. I mean, is this an assumption? He must have gone on his way rejoicing, you know? He high-fived Philip, and so that's a pretty good indication that he went on his way rejoicing. It's not it. He knows for a fact, and he's stating it for a fact. The man went on his way rejoicing. Well, did the guy return to Jerusalem, and then he met up with Luke? Did he send him? Why would he come back to Jerusalem? He found everything that he's looking for out in the desert, and nothing there in Jerusalem. (laughs) Luke knows that he went on his way rejoicing because the man was not reading a book. You know, we read books. We can flip to the beginning, to the end, you know, any part of it. Flip around, hey, read chapter 6. Okay, there it is. This guy was reading a scroll. Unroll here, roll up here. Unroll here, roll up here. Unroll here, roll up here. Wherever you left off, in other words, is where you pick up. And he's told us that he was in Isaiah 53. And Luke knows Isaiah. And he's like, well... When he gets back in the chariot, I mean, it's not like he has a tablet and he can watch movies on his way back to Ethiopia. He's, he's clearly going to pick up the scroll. So after Isaiah 53, then he's going to read Isaiah 54. And what is he going to read? He'll see this. Isaiah says, sing, O barren one, O barren one, who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Why? For the children of the desolate one, of the dry one, will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. 
He says, in fact, you need a bigger place to live. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Like, seriously, no, build as many rooms as you can. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. You're going to have all kinds of children. You're going to need a much bigger place to live. You're like, what kind of children are we talking about here? Because clearly we're not talking about physical children. A man is a eunuch. Talking about spiritual children. What is this man realizing? He's like, listen, man, I can be fruitful, like really fruitful. Worthless, my goodness. How about precious? And Luke's like, that would have just, that's going to thrill the man's heart. He, he, I just, I just, I know it. He, he went on his way rejoicing. And then after Isaiah 54, he's like, and then he would read Isaiah 55. So he'd read things like this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This guy is so thirsty. He's in Ethiopia. He goes 800 miles in a carriage looking for, longing for forgiveness and eternal life and all of these things, only to be mistreated, only to be abused, only to be discriminated, only to be taken advantage of because of his great wealth, which makes this next part valuable to him. It says, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price because Jesus has paid the price. Therefore, what we get, 100% free. Luke's like, oh, see, that's going to just, I mean, this guy's going to be jazzed. Like, and then he goes, and wait a minute. Then, then he's going to get to Isaiah 56. I think Luke wrote this, and like he just put his pen down and smiled. He went on his way rejoicing because he knew he would read this. It says, let not the foreigner, that's what he has been clearly marked at in that city. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, how? Through faith in Jesus, say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. That's what he experienced there, but it's not what we experience It's the opposite of what we, like when we come to faith in Jesus, we are joined forever to his people. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. I'm consigned to a life of fruitlessness and I'm worthless. Guys, God often builds his kingdom through the most unlikely people. This guy would never have looked at himself in the mirror and gone, pretty sure I'm going to kick butt and take names when it comes to the mission of God. And he's coming to you and saying, you know, if, if the Lord has, has captured you, if he has forgiven you, if you'll surrender to this mission, it's what you're made for. Ask to be filled in his spirit and he will fill you and send you out and be strategic about how you do this with your business, with your relationships, all the way across the board, Monday through Saturday. That's what you're called to. It's that kind of faith. This man for the last 2,000 years has been known by millions. He is widely and universally regarded as the founder of what is known as the Coptic Church, which is a group of of Christians, mostly in the Middle East, like Ethiopia, southern Sudan, but also elsewhere. I mean, there are a million or two in North America alone. This church is one of the most brutally persecuted church in the world. It has been for the last 2,000 years. They have suffered racism, persecution, and Islam. Uh, Many of its men, women, and children have been tortured Uh, and even killed and crucified in some instances for faith in Jesus, and yet they have not abandoned the faith. As we sit here today, uh, there are somewhere between 5 and 7 million of these Christians in Egypt alone. 
And every one of them calls this man father. It's profound. It's amazing. So Jesus, by his spirit, is building a kingdom. And the punchline is he wants to do that through you. So like when you get up tomorrow, there you are. Whether you've surrendered to it or not, that's the face of a kingdom builder. Okay, then again on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you get the idea. God wants to use you. So I close with this. Um, If you don't know Christ, bring to him your brokenness. Bring to him your failures. Bring to him all your secrets that, by the way, he knows and maybe other than him, only you know. Thoughts, deeds, whatever. And realize that in him you find a sacrifice that covers it all. And that he takes anyone and everyone who comes to him. But then once you've done that, and if you've done that, then surrender to his mission for you. Realize he's made you for a purpose, and it's not to burn your life on you, but it's to burn your life for him and to make a difference for all of eternity. And sit down and figure out how to do it. Say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I surrender to you. I want to live a life that matters. Live like it matters. And he wants you to do that as well. Okay? So there you go. How do you do that this week? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the precious life of this amazing man whom you made for your glory. We, we are so grateful that you are so great uh, that you can use him, you can use me, you can use us. Uh, well, Lord, the fact that you can use us is, is a testament to your goodness. It is a testament to how great you are. Are You overcome our weaknesses and our failures. You forgive all of our shortcomings, past, present, and future. You give us value by the laying down of your life for us. Lord, you fill us with your spirit, and then you give us a mission. Let us be captured by your love, and let us go out on your mission. Wake up your church that we might live like it matters. We praise you, Lord, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.